Hey guys, I'm Josh. I'm one of the leaders uh, around here. Once you do have a Bible, go ahead and open to the New Testament, to the letter that we call 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Last fall, if you're new, we set to work reorienting our young church entirely around the idea of discipleship to Jesus. In the modern Western world, those who follow Jesus are often called Christians or something like a Jesus follower or Christ follower. But the word the New Testament prefers is disciple or methetes in Greek. That same word can also be translated learner, or we think an even better translation is an apprentice. Jesus' disciples are effectively apprentices to a teacher. They set out to be with their teacher to become like their teacher, and to do all the things that their teacher did, to carry on his work in the world. Of course, in order to accomplish these three goals, we can't simply sit back and wait to wake up one day having become a master apprentice of Jesus. And showing up to church and listening to sermons are definitely a part of that process, but not the only part. You cannot, for example, read a book about karate, listen to a podcast, and expect to become an actual black belt. I'm told it doesn't work that way. To become a black belt requires training. It actually takes a great deal of practice. So, every two months, we take on one of the practices of Jesus, as exemplified by his teachings, his lifestyle, and we talk about them a bit here on Sunday evenings, and then we go out into what we call Van City Communities to actually practice them in the shared context of life with other people as disciples of Jesus. Currently, we're working our way through a practice called Dealing With Your Past, Because becoming a thriving disciple of Jesus is about more than how often you read the scriptures or how often you pray or fast. It's also about becoming an emotionally healthy and mature human being, just as Jesus himself was emotionally healthy and mature. So if you're just joining us, you can go back and catch up with the podcast. Um, I have here before me an illustration. Are you excited about this? I'm pretty pumped about it. It's my first ever as a pastor and teacher. Uh, Abby made fun of me when I described to her what I was about to do because uh, I'm from Georgia. When we lived in Georgia, every pastor has an illustration every week. Uh, I don't mean to make fun of them because some of them were quite great. But she was like, oh, you're going to get your suitcases out? Because we saw this fellow like bring suitcases to the cross. He's like, leave your baggage at the cross. You know, one guy was like, you know, the Bible's like your golf swing. He had a golf club. I was like, you could just pantomime that. You don't have to actually bring the golf club. I guess that goes for everything. Now, I have before me two t-shirts. Behold, uh, they are mine. Believe it or not, I have more than one. Uh, (laughs) Together, this actually represents my wardrobe, my entire (laughs) wardrobe. Um, Now, go through this thought exercise with me because I went through the trouble of bringing these shirts. Now, imagine that shirt number one on my left here, let's remember that. Shirt number one, I'm going to drape it here. This is for you, Kiana. Enjoy that. They are clean. Um, Shirt number one is a readily available, like, industry standard shirt. It was assembled in some factory, uh, took a truck ride to some, you know, major retailer in the the context of this illustration, uh, where it was purchased by, like, you know, a mom or something like that. Remember, it's it's an analogy. So, you know, I don't buy clothes made by slaves, don't worry. But let's just say that in this context, it was, like, come from some big retailer, blah, blah, blah. Now, shirt number two, on the other hand, this one's for you, Dave. Enjoy. Same exact shirt, uh, but it was assembled by hand 
in Calcutta, India by a team of young ladies. In fact, the assembling of shirt number two provided housing and a wage and safety from the sex trade for the girls in question who assembled uh, the shirt, some of them as young as 12 and even younger. Now, your experience of either product will be uh, you know, indistinguishable from one another. They're identical in, in every way. In fact, it's fashioned from the exact same materials, same exact construction process, whatever that is, same basic quality, durability, and so on. Even so, um, the average consumer would now prefer option number two over option number one. Many of them, in fact, would pay more for the shirt on my right than they would for the shirt on my left. And one reason is, I'm sure, because of the sense of humanitarian contribution the consumer enjoys by purchasing option number two. You know, they're thinking, well, if I'm buying a shirt, I might as well help someone out in the process. Nothing wrong with that. But I would argue that there's another, perhaps more significant reason that would compel the preference in question. Option number two actually has a story behind it. It has something that we can wrap our heads around that makes sense to us. It has a sense of drama, of conflict, of resolution, even redemption. This is just some shirt that came from some anonymous factory. As human beings, we tend to understand the world via the vehicle of story. We are narrative animals, one sociologist said. Whether we realize it or not, we all believe certain stories about ourselves, um, about other people. We believe certain stories about God and on down the list. And these stories shape who we are and who we will become. For instance, if you believe the story that life on earth developed over this incredible series of accidents with no creator, no higher purpose, no destiny other than entropy, well, the life you live will be shaped by that story. If you believe that life is the outworking of a personal and benevolent creator, however, your life will be shaped quite differently. But this is just one sort of meta example. We tend to live out a series of stories at any given moment of our lives, stories about our world, about our culture, about our families, our friends, art, science, stories about ourselves. Human beings don't simply understand and process the world via narrative, though we do. We actually love a story. We connect with a story. We want and need a great story for ourselves. And a tremendous amount of our story was written or is being written in the context of our families of origin. And whether wonderful or horrific, we've all experienced a certain level of dysfunction in our families because they consist of people. And this means that as a result of your family's particular dysfunction, there are certain stories that you live by that are actually entirely untrue. Not simply things that you were taught directly, like you were told something that was a lie, but lessons that you learned via experience over the course of many years. There are things that you understand to be true as a result of your upbringing and the experiences therein, things about yourself, about the world, about God, that are lies. So what are they? With that in mind, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, a bit of context, what we're about to read is uh, not a book, but a letter written from one master apprentice of Jesus to a church that he planted in a city called Corinth. Now, this gentleman called Paul, who authored the letter, when we first find him in the New Testament earlier, he is not the apprentice of Jesus who later authors the letters to the church in Corinth. When we first meet him, Paul is this violent, religious bigot who's actively working to destroy this new subversive movement based on the teachings and the veneration of a 
rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, if you know the story, Paul encounters this very same Jesus of Nazareth, and his life is turned completely upside down. Paul goes on to travel some 10,000 miles that we know of all over the Roman Empire, now advocating and advancing the very same movement he previously persecuted. Paul begins to plant churches for Jesus all across the ancient world. And at some point in the story, Paul arrives in the city of Corinth. He preaches there, apparently effectively. Some citizens of the city become disciples of Jesus, and they create the very first church made up predominantly of Gentile or non-Jewish followers of Jesus. So Paul stays with that church for about a year, year and a half before moving on to plant more churches. That's kind of his bag. Now, a few years removed from his time with the church in Corinth, Paul is elsewhere, still planting churches, still being a missionary, when he begins to hear reports of what the church in Corinth is up to. And part of it is encouraging, and a bigger part of it is really grieves Paul. So to respond, Paul writes letters back to that church. Now, Paul's relationship with the church was something of a a complicated one. Corinth, as a result of its pragmatic viability as a destination for cargo ships and for trade routes, had become this really wealthy city. It was also a city rich with pluralism, that is like the worship of many gods, Apollos and Aphrodite and Poseidon, Asclepius, even the imperial cult of Caesar where you would go to worship the emperor. So there were Egyptians and Greeks and Romans, this big old pantheon, meaning that these new disciples of Jesus in this place called Corinth are all drawn from this culture of multiple gods from multiple religions. These people had been living out of this narrative that says there's no one way to the divine. There's all sorts of ways to the divine. And they've traded that narrative for a new one. The new one is Jesus is the true revelation of the one true creator God, and he is the only way to access that God. But it wasn't just pagan spirituality that they had traded off. One historian described Corinth as the combined New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the first century. So I'm sure you've heard talk about the degeneration of society. Oh my gosh, it's gotten so much worse. But what we know about Corinth in the first century makes a place look like modern, you know, like, like modern day Portland look like the Bible Belt or like Nick at Night or TV Land, I don't know, whatever's still on the air. And does original, they all do like new shows now, right? The last time I was around the television and I was like, oh boy, Nick at Night. And I was like, what the heck is this? It's a new show. Get this trash out of here. So anyway, in Corinth, there were temple prostitutes with whom one could buy sex as an act of worship to a pagan deity. Uh, there were wild drunkenness and orgies. There was socially acceptable pederasty, which is a sexual relationship with a grown man and a small boy, even amongst rulers and politicians. This was entirely normative. And this was life as usual in Corinth 2,000 years ago. And Paul plants a church there in this city. And he does it successfully. But then, years later, elements of Corinth have begun to bleed back into the disciples of Jesus who lived there. So one motif among many in Paul's letters to the church in Corinth is reminding the people that they once lived by another story. Yeah, I get that. But now they live by a new one. And that's important. So imagine if I, uh, Josh, had planted this church called Van City with a team of people, and then we moved on to plant other churches. Maybe that's our bag in this illustration. So sometime later, I hear stories about what you guys are up to, and people are saying all sorts of things like, yeah, they get drunk all the time, they're smoking pot at church, they're, you know, they're addicted to their iPhones, they watch porn, and brokenhearted, I send word back to the church, Van City, and I say, hey, listen, that may very well be the way of Vancouver, or the way of Portland, or the way of the world around you, but it's not the way of Jesus. Maybe some of you lived that way before, but now you have a new story, 
So live by the news story. That's a bit like what Paul is up to with his letters. And Paul, of all people, should know. In fact, in the way of haunted personal histories, Paul should empathize with these people. So I previously described Paul as a violent bigot, and he was. But in his context, he was a zealous, elite religious leader of the highest ranking in regard to the Hebrew people. So convinced of his cause that he felt it good to put those who disrupted it to death. And then Paul met Jesus, and he changed. But he didn't forget what had happened to him before. In 1 Timothy, Paul describes himself as having been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. By his own admission, he was ignorant and unbelieving. But Paul also remembered always who he had become. And he calls himself things like a new creation. Once an enemy, but now a royal ambassador for the cause of King Jesus. So Paul understood this conflict of narratives, your old story against your new story. And he wrote to this church in Corinth about that struggle. So with that in mind, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Paul begins by stating the obvious. Yes, we live in the world. Now, if you grew up in a certain circle of the church, the world was kind of like a dirty word for like everything around you, basically. I remember once this very kind, very um, lovely, well-meaning, uh, but <laughs> very churchy, I guess I'll say, uh, woman trying to relate to me um, by talking about, you know, the rock music, because she saw that I had long hair or whatever. So she's like, yeah, yeah. She, told, she mentioned that at one point the Rolling Stones had been her favorite band. And I was just like, oh, this nice lady's trying to relate to me. So neat, I said, neat. You like the Rolling Stones? And she quickly corrected herself when she realized how that sound came out of her mouth. She said, well, at least they were my favorite when I was in the world. And I thought, when you were in the world, where the heck are you now? <laughs> so out of this line of thinking comes the, you know, the Christianese adage, in the world, not of the world, which more often than not means, yeah, technically we have to live here on earth, but only until God gets us out of here. So don't mix in with any of the world's ickiness, hide in a church or in a Christian bookstore and wait this thing out. Um, but when Paul talks about the world, he's not necessarily referring to all secular culture. In fact, read the story of the New Testament. The church does anything but hide out from the world. In that sense, they integrate into the culture. They get their hands dirty for the kingdom of God. The world here refers to specifically the brokenness of culture and of humanity. So not necessarily a, a Rolling Stone album per se. I don't know, maybe. But the sense of frustration that you get when you drive by uh, a long uh, succession of strip clubs or, or when you read about alcoholism and ab the abuse of children or civil war in Syria. That's the sense of brokenness that Paul calls the world, everything that's bent away from the way of Jesus. And Paul says, yeah, we, we live in the midst of all that. I realize that it's all around us and it affects us. The limitations, the frustrations, the conflicts, the agony of the world around us is absolutely a part of our story. 
But, Paul continues, we simply do things differently. And he begins to create this fascinating and beautiful dichotomy by saying that we, as disciples of Jesus, do not wage war as the world does. War, after all, is a language that the Roman world spoke very well. Paul says that the way of the world is the way of power, you know, to attempt to resolve problems with violence. And Paul says, well, we, re- we reject that prom- premise as it is ordinarily understood. Let the world play the game of man's war as if we were so limited and so weak and so uncreative. Paul does this quite a bit in his writings. He exploits and subverts military language to draw attention to a different sort of battle, but just as real. One he specifies in Ephesians is not against people, but against spiritual evil. And history confirms Paul's point. For hundreds of years, the earliest followers of Jesus were famous for refusing to participate in war. And he elaborates, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And Paul's point here is sort of layered. He's creating a clear dichotomy between the way of the church and the way of the world. One uses war and its traditional weapons of violence. The other rejects those in favor of something stronger, a better weapon for a battle of spiritual warfare, but a battle just the same. So there's a juxtaposition between the world's war and the church's spiritual warfare. And Paul is writing about subverting inherited scripts. Remember the audience that he writes to about getting rid of the old story and living into a new story. And the purposeful rejection of the world's war, we do not do war as the world does, in in favor of the weapons of spiritual warfare is a radically subverted narrative. That's how strong the dichotomy between the old and the new is. So like the difference between man's violence and between spiritual warfare. After all, the church's more powerful spiritual weapons have the ability to demolish strongholds, he writes. And that Greek word there for strongholds is something, akoroma, which can also be translated as a castle or a fortress. So get this incredible imagery that Paul is crafting. These weapons of the church can bring down the seemingly invincible castles of power. And he has something in mind when he mentions strongholds. He goes on to say that we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, Many read this, as, as I've often done in the past, as like a case for apologetics. You read this as like uh, Paul's talking about defending God to outside parties, uh, purposes of evangelism, you know, arguments, having answers for the opponents of the way of Jesus. But Paul's premise is actually a bit bigger than that. The language he used describes any reasoning that takes shape in the mind and then is worked out in behavior, which is in any way contrary to the way of Jesus. Meaning the story that I decide what is best for me can be demolished. It is a stronghold and it can be taken down. The story that we define something like sexuality and that it's the truest thing about us can be demolished. The story that personal autonomy is the highest achievable good for every person can be demolished. And Paul says that any flicker of thought which runs contrary to the way of Jesus can be taken captive. And he's continuing with his war imagery here, the idea that these thoughts from other stories will be like prisoners of war. And these thoughts will be taken captive in order that they might be submitted to Jesus and become obedient to him. And I love how hardcore that language is because self-denial in this day and age is the great hurdle to making the way of Jesus palatable and appealing to a wider audience. You know, no, no matter how good our coffee is or how talented the band sounds or how tolerant the famous pastor appears to be, eventually everyone is going to have to deny themselves if they want to do this whole Jesus thing. And that, my friends, is a very hard sell. 
I was on the phone this week with one of uh, our community leaders who was telling me that as they've worked through the practices, some folks in their group have expressed they simply don't like some of them, which is fine. It happens. Um, and they say sort of like, oh, no, thanks. This, this one isn't for me. It's not really all that fun or emotionally impacting for me personally. And I was quiet for a few moments because I was thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's probably true. And then I thought, well, yeah, but if this person wants to follow Jesus, I'm afraid they will constantly arrive at notions that don't seem fun or easy or accommodating or as emotionally fulfilling as some other thing might be. And I feel that I should be as honest with myself, first and foremost, and everyone here, that the way of Jesus entails ongoing submission. Let let that word make you squirm. uh, Believe it or not, Jesus sold it even worse. He had this whole thing about like, hey, if anyone wants to apprentice me, that's great. First, come and die. It's like, good grief, man. At least I say, you know, submission. It sounds, that sounds hard to me. And whether or not that makes you squirm, listen to me. I want you to understand that bringing your thoughts to Jesus as an act of submission can change the way that you understand reality. And this isn't just about something easy, uh, like an easy topic to broach in my context from the stage, like autonomy or sexuality. If your story has taught you to believe, for example, that you are unlovable, And if you bring that thought to Jesus, will he affirm that story or will he denounce it? Yeah, he'll deny it. He will reject it. He will demand that that thought be put to death. Now, if Jesus has more authority than I do, and if I bring him the story that I am unlovable, and Jesus tells me the opposite is true, then I've been given a new story. And then God's spirit within me will teach me how to understand and to believe and to live knowing that the new story is the truer story. Paul, of all people, understands that our past, the stories that we've inherited, have profound lingering effects on the way we live, the way we understand ourselves and other people and God. But listen, Paul is saying that these stories are sometimes lies. They are often enemies of the way of Jesus. We can take them as prisoners of war and we can bring them to King Jesus for judgment. So when I, as I often do, think to myself something like, oh, I'm being rejected because I am loathsome. Paul is saying that I I am to take that thought captive immediately and drag it kicking and screaming before Jesus the King and say, what about this one, Lord? Is this one true? And what will Jesus say? No. No. It's not true. You are my beloved son. Away with this thought for good. Now, for us tonight, those of us who are attempting this process of dealing with our pasts, how do we take these thoughts captive? How do we identify them? Where did they come from? These stories developed and nurtured by our past are sometimes called narrative scripts. Put simply, a narrative script is a message that informs your behavior, They're formed mostly across the span of childhood, but they've been massively shaped by the important moments in your stories. So something like a divorce or a death or an abandonment. And together, these narrative scripts make up the story of who you are, not who you imagine yourself to be, uh, not who you'd like to be, not the you that you're promoting on the internet, but the story that your life tells to those who know you and the story that your life tells to God. It's easy then to see why mining out each of these narrative scripts could become difficult. Some of them, I suspect, we don't even know ourselves. So let's talk a bit about what makes a narrative script. The first ingredient is events. 
This could be something good, like the time a parent consoled you with comfort and advice that's lasted well into adulthood. Or it could be something traumatic, the death of a loved one or the divorce of your parents. And let me tell you guys something. In my conversations with some of you guys, some of your community leaders, I've observed a certain tendency that some of us have to minimize events, where we'll say things like, well, yeah, that awful thing happened, but I got over it. Or we'll say, oh, yeah, sure, it was rough, but it no longer affects me. And listen to me, if you actually want to understand the story that you believe, the narrative script that informs your behavior, so that you can take every thought captive in order to grow in discipleship and spiritual maturity, if that's what you want, then you cannot discredit events. Some events that informed your narrative scripts could have been recurring motifs. If your parents never took an interest in what mattered most to you, for example, that recurring event probably shaped some of your scripts. It stands to reason. The next ingredient in a narrative script is emotion, specifically the thoughts and feelings connected to the event. So for you stoic folks who think yourselves above the whole notion of feeling, you know, I would like to here remind us that part of emulating and developing the emotional health and maturity of Jesus means feeling. I'm sorry to say it's part of the whole package. After all, Jesus himself was an emotional human being. Of course he was emotional. He celebrated, he wept, he agonized, he became joyful or angry or even indignant, all very strong emotional states. And more often than not, these self-proclaimed not-that-emotional folks uh, could just be a tad frightened, perhaps. And that's okay, but emotions are at the core of the stories we believe, for better or for worse. If you want to live into the truth of Jesus in full, we'll have to understand how our emotions inform our thinking and our behavior. We have to sit in those emotions and ask a complicated and often difficult question. What did I feel when this happened? Why did I feel that way? And don't be flippant or dismissive, but explore that space with honest vulnerability. And because emotions build scripts. They build the stories that you believe. But emotions don't complete a narrative script until they are joined by an interpretation, meaning how we understand the event and our feelings about it are the place where a narrative script takes place or takes shape. My friend gave me this example of that formula in her life. Because my mom left me, I felt sad and embarrassed and worthless, and I took that event and those feelings to mean that I was replaceable and that no one would want to stay or be part of my life long term. And reverse engineering those ingredients can become a powerfully informative tool in rejecting old stories in favor of new, truer stories that are spoken by Jesus. So she could say, oh, wow, I see that because my mom left, I felt replaceable. And I took that event and those feelings to mean that I would always be abandoned. But Jesus says that that isn't true. It's not innate. It's not inherent in who I am. It's not necessary. I believe it because of my past. And that's important but I don't have to believe it anymore. And if I no longer believe it, then I no longer have to behave as though it is true and to carry it into my relationships today with the same fear and the same ongoing apprehension. Now, before we end tonight, I want to talk a bit more about why this should matter to you and to me. You may not notice this on a regular basis, but these narrative scripts, the stories we believe, have a tremendous amount of influence on your thinking and your behavior all the time how you relate to your spouse or your significant other, how you work, how you interact with your coworkers and your boss, how you operate in the context of community with other people. And some narrative scripts are actually really good. Some have shaped us to become more like Jesus, but others have done just the opposite. 
when we come to believe things about ourselves and the world around us that are simply not true, those things have an effect on us, inevitably. It's simply naive, and if I may, a bit irresponsible to assume that we are somehow above the effects of our life story. The things that have happened to us have had some effect on us. And that's okay. That's part of being human. Just because you aren't in a mental institution or just because you aren't repeating the exact same patterns of sin doesn't mean that you haven't been affected by them. And listen, as long as we behave as though we are somehow above or immune to these scripts, they will continue to have some amount of power over us. And I want you to understand that this is about your relationship with God. This is about your discipleship to Jesus. If you want to have life to the fullest, as Jesus himself described it, then we have to exchange the lies that we believe for the truth of Jesus, even the ones that we've developed in the past and that we aren't conscious of on a regular basis. And I've encountered a small amount of disposition that sort of seems like, who needs all this self-help therapeutic stuff? I just want to read my Bible and go to church. That's enough for me. And I'm just asking you to consider trying. Consider the premise that you are not better at this than Paul, that, or the Corinthians for that matter, that it stands to reason that you may have come to believe certain things as a result of moments in your life that are not true, and that Jesus wants to give you a better story. Now, if I can convince you to come along on this trip, you may ask, okay, so how do we identify a narrative script? And the shocker here in context of this series is that you go to your family of origin first. Those of you who are working your way through your genogram, which is this detailed image of your family tree that we're doing in our practices right now, if you're not in a community or you just haven't started yet, you can go to practicingtheway.org and there's a whole workbook to guide you through the process. If you are, you're discovering that you've inherited certain patterns of behavior, certain generational sins and brokenness, but you've also inherited stories. You've inherited scripts. Most likely, the bulk of these stories have come from your mom or your dad or whoever raised you, but you've also inherited stories, stories from your siblings or from folks that you grew up around or even key events in your life. Here's an easy, well-known example. When parents divorce, many children understand themselves as a contributing factor in that event, regardless of whether or not that has any bearing in reality. And as a result of those emotions ensuing from that event, they develop a narrative script that says something like, oh, I cause relationships to end, whether they know it or not. Now, a lot of you, my guess is, are already well aware of some of your inherited scripts. I tend to believe this because this thing happened to me or whatever it might be. But my guess is that there are more and we have no idea. Even so, these scripts do continue to live on in your memory. So to access them, you go by the way of memory. So you start with the easily recalled, crucial formative events, and you work to uncover the events that are more hidden in the surrounding debris. Because memories can be both explicit and implicit. I'm sure you guys know all about this. Explicit memories are like the easily accessed Uh, memories, good or bad, serious trauma, or maybe just something really wonderful that stands out to you. So I remember the phone call in which I learned that my dad had just died, and I also remember the day that my dad took me to see Gremlins 2 in a movie theater. One good, one bad, both very formative, both explicit. Implicit memories are tucked beneath the fog of subconscious. So it could be something ordinary but hazy, like what your bedtime was when you were seven years old, or it could be something really horrific that you've blocked out. The human mind has an ability to do that. As I worked through my genogram, I remembered this time when someone in my extended family had some sort of panic attack uh, in an attic a couple of years ago because they suddenly remembered that decades prior, an abusive family member had locked them alone in a dark attic for days at a time. And somehow they had buried that memory 
but it was still there, just hidden, waiting to come back out. And I believe that hidden memory probably shaped the way that this extended family member understood themselves and other people and God, even though it was back there in their subconscious, which raises the question, is the only method to getting at these things really to just sit around trying to remember stuff? Um, No, there's another way, which is to tell your story. It's really just that simple, to tell the story of your life to a safe, trusted friend from beginning to end, probably over the course of several cups of coffee, I'm I'm assuming. If you're ambitious, go for the whole thing. Um, And together with someone you trust, look for certain patterns and and moments and memories in an effort to uncover narrative scripts. This could be someone in your family that you're close with, someone in your community that you trust. It could be your therapist, your counselor, whoever. But a third party can be massively helpful in this process because they're a fresh set of ears and eyes on your biography. I do this with my therapist personally, and often I'll tell like just a story of something that happened the week before and uh, something I'm dealing with. And he has this way of making an observation that when he says it, it seems terribly obvious. I'm like, well, yeah, duh. Um, But I had overlooked altogether. And he's just a fresh set of eyes and ears. You know, he's got a PhD or whatever. I'm sure it helps a little. Now, now that you've got your story out in the open, that you're processing through with someone you trust, you pray. After all, we do have access to someone who knows every detail of our infinitely complicated life stories with greater insight and relational wisdom than we can ever hope to have. And we'll talk more about inner healing prayer and imaginative prayer in the next round of practices. But for now, let me just say that uncovering a certain script can become a powerful moment in your life when that event and those emotions and that interpretation are brought before Jesus. And you simply ask Jesus, What do you say about this memory, about this thing that I've been believing for most of my life? What do you say about this? And then, of course, community can become a place for the identification of scripts and the distribution of truth over those scripts. Ask someone in your community or someone you share a lot of life with to tell you what they hear you say about yourself through your actions and the motifs and conversation. A few weeks ago, Abby and I were spending time with a couple that has been uh, mentored us in our journey to plant this church, this awesome South African duo that plant churches all over the place. And I was just telling them a bit about Van City and about myself and uh, Meryl, this woman, Meryl, she's lovely. She was just nodding thoughtfully and she said, Josh, you don't like yourself very much, do you? And I hadn't said anything like that. I thought I was giving her ordinary information. But she was, I think, with a bit of prophetic insight, uh, reading between the lines of everything I was saying. And she was absolutely right. And this is why the way of Jesus is always done in community, never done in isolation, because other people have insight into your life that you don't have inside your own eyes. Community is where we learn and relearn how to do relationships according to the way of Jesus. Community can be the place where you live out the new and better scripts spoken over you by Jesus. And sadly, exchanging a lie for the truth is often an ongoing and sometimes arduous process. So I need people like uh, my wife, Abby, who confront the lives that I believe on an ongoing basis uh, with, you know, an obstinate resolve. So when I say things like, oh, I'm so stupid or my friends don't love me, Abby will say, that's a lie. It's just not true. You're not stupid. Your friends absolutely love you. And I have to decide to accept those reminders. It doesn't always come naturally or emotionally. Like, you're right. I feel that way now because you just happened to say it. That's what it means to take a thought captive, to deliberately and on a regular basis reject the lies I've come to believe about myself and choose to believe the way the things that Jesus says instead, regardless of the undulating waves of my emotional state. 
I'm not entirely, entirely sure why yet. I'm working on it. But I sometimes sort of crawl in my own skin around the people that I love most, assuming that I'm like the unwelcome, you know, uh, member of the party or that I'm barely tolerated or something like that. And a few weeks ago, I was making these uh, insecure, sarcastic jokes about the fact that I feel that way to uh, my friend Peter, uh, my friend Peter. And he seemed genuinely confused. He's like, what are you talking about? You know, he was just like, adults hang out with who they want to hang out with. That's, that was his pushback. <laughs> then uh, something in truly, truly incredible happened. Prepare yourselves for perhaps the best story that I've ever told in a sermon. You guys ready for this? One evening, um, some scoundrel robbed several cars in the parking lot of our old apartment. One of them was mine. And out of that car, the thief took something very precious to me, my skateboard. It was the only thing of value in the car. The following evening, my friend Peter came over to watch a movie. He left his keys at my apartment. In the morning, my landlord, having seen the thief and my skateboard on the security tape, recognized the very same villain as he passed by in front of her car carrying the skateboard the next morning. And she confronted him, but he fled the scene. So having acquired these details from her via the cellular phone, miracle of technology, I jumped in my car and I started scouring the neighborhood for signs of this culprit to no avail. I had no idea what I might say to this guy if I found him. I'm a pacifist, so I was just planning on asking nicely and see if things worked out from there. Um, when I arrived home, defeated, because I didn't find the guy, uh, Peter had come over to retrieve his keys. And this setback of picking up his keys, coupled with this random decision that he had made to take a different route home on his, way, on his walk back to his apartment, suddenly Peter came face to face with the thief and my skateboard. Rain was falling all around him. Um, cut the tension with a knife. And in that fateful moment, the, 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 as the story has been told to me, Peter gasped, dude, before simply snatching the skateboard out of this guy's hands and running away. <laughs> uh, a few minutes later, he appeared once again at my apartment, soaking wet with my rescued skateboard in hand. Truly incredible series of events. Abby and I just reeled from it for days. Can you believe this thing that happened? It's amazing. And ever since then, I said, I'm going to find a way to tell that story in a sermon. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking. No, I'm just kidding. It does. It does. <laughs> so anyway, I'm reeling from the events of this incredible thing that's happened. Uh, and by the, you know, just chaos theory in effect, all these little things that had to come together. And I was even more struck by the news that, unbeknownst to me, some of my closest friends were working out plans to, to buy me a new skateboard themselves. It's not a huge deal in the grand scheme of things, but to me, it was monumental. It, you know, it, it caused me to weep. When I text Peter to thank him for his heroics and, you know, um, and the fact that he, you know, they were planning to get me a skateboard, he said, yeah, man, man, your friends all really love you. He had very kind words to say. And his words, which were just, you know, like, that's what kind friends say to one another. They really just cut through me. They cut through the lies that I believe, and they shook me to my core on that day. And I, I got to choose in that moment whether or not I would believe the truth or the lies that I've inherited as some part of my story. A friend of mine says that you can't change your past, but you can change the way that you experience it. And really, that's kind of what we're getting at with all of this. Changing our experience of the past can take place over an extended period through the help of a doctor, a therapist, or it could happen in the context of relearning relationships and healthy community, or it could happen through some profound moment or series of moments in which the Holy Spirit speaks and reveals truth in our life. Changing our experience of the past can also take place by 
seizing destructive thought patterns one by one and sentencing them to death. Of course, my friend said that hurtful thing. I'm so obnoxious. I'm so unlovable. Wait, no, that's not what Jesus says about me. I reject that lie that I am unlovable. I choose to replace it with God's truth that I am loved. And that's something that I actually have to do and to think and to say regardless of my emotional state. But getting at those lies begins to feel like placing a, you know, a bucket beneath a leaky pipe until we identify the source and treat it accordingly. And there's one person who has perfect access to our entire life story with perfect, loving insight. And Jesus, by his spirit, can reveal these stories that we're believing. He can remind us what is true and reveal what is not true. You are enough. You are beloved. You've been made holy and blameless in the sight of God. There is no condemnation for you who follow Jesus. Your story may say otherwise, maybe all the time, maybe on a recurring basis, but Jesus says that that's what's true, that you are holy and blameless. So may we as a community, as a family, find the courage to bring our story before Jesus again and again, our teacher, our king, that he might exchange every lie for the truth. Would you guys stand up with me as we pray and invite the spirit to come and speak?